KPBS On Demand is supported by Carlsbad's Pacific Ridge School, presenting Experts in Education, a series of informational webinars. Topics include affording private school, embracing the journey of middle school, and an insider's look into the college process. To register, visit pacificridge.org experts. From So Say We All in KPBS in San Diego, welcome to Incoming the series that features true stories from the lives of America's veterans told in their own words, straight from their own mouths. I'm your host, Justin Hudnall. Today's show is split into three parts and three different veteran writers, each focusing respectively on periods before the country went to war after 9-11, during deployment downrange in Iraq, and the aftermath after leaving the service. That's why we're titling today's show, Time is a River after one of my favorite quotes of all time, by the American folk singer Utah Phillips, who said the past doesn't go anywhere. Time is a river, and you are standing in it. Each part is told respectively by Army veterans Kelly Hewlett, Brooke King, and Zach Dreyer. And while their experiences were wildly different, they shared a part of the same war at different points, and collectively tell its story. So with that, we're going to start our show off with a story from a former U.S. Army nurse who never left the States during her enlistment, and instead had the war come to her. Hello. <laughs> Allow me to introduce you to Ms. Kelly Hewlett. One, two. She's currently enrolled in nursing school at SDSU. And my professors always say in the beginning of the semester, so Kelly, if I ever say something that you've seen or experienced, can you raise your hand so you can tell the class about it? For the sake of full disclosure, she and I both went to Patrick Henry High School together. Go Patriots. <laughs> no. How funny. It's a tiny world and time flies. And I mentioned that because... Um, I actually went to the military right out of high school. Hadn't even... I just had my 18th birthday. I didn't know what I was going to do. My parents were like, I know what you're going to do. And so I went in the Army. And she was stationed at Walter Reed Army Medical Center. It's really tiny. It's actually maybe three blocks. Right before September 11th. But I'll let her tell you the rest. Hi, my name is Kelly Hewlett, and my story is called Beyond the Lines. All right, I'm just going to jump into it. Young and without much direction in my life, my parents pushed me to join the Army. They couldn't afford higher education for me and my younger sister, and this was the only thing they could think of to make sure that we were educated. My mother was a U.S. Army sergeant. She'd come to learn of a field in the military that gave back, a degree that translated into the civilian world when most did not. So... I found myself in this large room with a dozen others. My right hand was raised and I was silently sobbing to myself as I was being sworn in. After being stationed at Walter Reed Army Medical Center, right in the heart of DC, one thing was for sure. I'm gonna do the rest of my two years and go back home to San Diego, back where the sun shines and the cold does not exist. From what I hear, I had a primo duty station at Walter Reed. My mom was stationed in Korea when I was a kid. It seemed like she was gone forever. I just wanted to know that I can always just come back home when most could not. I was a nurse working on the medical surgical unit, Ward 68. It dealt with anything from the ears, nose, and throat to the gut. Every so often I would get lucky. I'd get a young soldier who'd come in and have to stay overnight for an appendectomy which was actually refreshing. We could talk about movies that were filmed in color. We had music from that decade. Most of my patients, the average, was usually around 60 and above. On September 11th, it all changed. 
I walked into an elderly man's room with his Metamucil in tow. His television was on, his mouth agape. The towers fell. We went to war. Not too much longer after that, our troops started to come home, but not in that fashion that the recruiters like to showcase, no. There was no GI mommy and daddy showing up in the junior's classroom, no hunky marine showing up early and unannounced at a spouse's job, no. Tattered, scathed, broken, both mentally and physically, that's what we saw. The unit I worked on transformed. The average age of my patients dropped to the early 20s. Men and women my age. Do you remember your first patient from the war? My first patient from the war. The first I do remember was a young, he was so young. He was a young guy and he had a right leg amputation and um, both of his arms were burned. I think his one of his arms was amputated. You have to be innovative with that because you have to be okay. So we give him his call light, he can hit it with what, you know, or how is he going to be able to say he needs help if he doesn't have family here yet? Usually you don't think you have to take care of a 19-year-old that much, but you I mean, you do. I mean, they are like so intensive. And we were just a med surge kind of like you stay overnight and go home. And now we're running out of capacity where people are like tubes everywhere. And I mean, we deal with it every once in a while, but like that's everybody. And you're seeing... Surgeries you've never seen before, skin grafts you've never seen before, and it started just picking up and then it never stopped. There were these nights where we'd do this assignment, this detail, and it consisted of two nurses from each unit in the hospital. And we'd make our way downstairs to the third floor to this makeshift triage area. And then a bus would pull up full of soldiers. Some can get off under their own will but the others had to be carried off of the litters and put onto gurneys. Their bandages last changed long ago. We would see if they were stable and then we'd figure out where to put them based on injury type and level of care needed. Other nights, a medevac would arrive on the helipad atop the hospital. That usually spelled a serious situation. I met one of those helicopters once. The patient died in the process of actually getting to the States twice. They needed him to have a new military ID since he was patrolling without one at the time of injury. His dog tags just weren't enough. They took a picture of him in flight. When they snapped it, he was soulless. The very fact that he ended up living was beyond me. The hospital's old rooms, once used for storage, were converted back into rooms that could bear patients. Soldiers were greeted with smiles and stifled tears. Welcome to Walter Reed. After some time, it became a well-oiled machine. Telephone cards, cash aid on debit cards, family would arrive soon thereafter. There was joy and pain all at once. A father met his twin girls only after a few months old for the very first time there. A 19-year-old hugged his parents who were just happy to have their baby back. One young lady was able to reconnect to her surprise with her bomb dog. Considering her own injuries, she could only imagine that he had died. He jumped onto her bed, and she wept for joy, lips trembling, tears streaming. And I was happy for myself, too, to finally get to see the tears of relief. Some significant others were just as distant as their returning counterparts. I changed IVs, 
while they fidgeted, reluctant to hold a stump where a hand once held a wedding band, slow to talk about the future. Be it a lost limb, a disfigured face, an affixed bag to a stomach that will forever collect stool, the adjustment is the worst. We did our duty, we fixed their bodies, but we neglected their minds. What was one of those experiences that was really affecting for you that you were kind of nervous about sharing? I feel that like the, not like a moral injustice, but it's just the part of the, the cookie cutter notion of it. Why is everyone on this exact same bed? Like everybody's on this circle, everybody's on this. So it kind of got to me like, are we doing anything? We became so inundated with paperwork because there were soldiers that would get kind of lost in the shuffle and wouldn't come back for follow-ups or something like that. The forgotten soldiers, you know, and that's always like that story. And it's sad because I was there witnessing some of it, just kind of didn't settle with you. These kids were so young and just so vulnerable. So yeah, that part was just hard for me to be able to say specifically that. Did we do them justice? Was it right, you know, um, how we did it? Or was that all we had that we could do, you know? I was shocked by the amount of patients who actually wanted to go back to war. They weren't done yet. Their brothers were still over there and they needed to go back. There were others that resented their time there. I had a patient of mine who exclaimed in his salty manner, we trained those MFers, and now they're shooting us up with their own too. It was years of this. I was drained and exhausted from not knowing how to deal with their baggage coupled with my own emotions. But I shouldn't complain. I mean, how could I? So I stuck to the script. What's the impact of taking care of that much intensive trauma on the nursing staff and on you? It's exhausting because not only is your, your workload increased, but what you're doing mentally is draining. Sometimes it's hard for you to even do your job because they don't want to deal with you or they don't want you to take their vital signs. They don't care about anything. They just want their morphine and they want you to get the heck out of their room. Weren't you telling me a story once and I'm going to get the details wrong, but didn't you say something about seeing a patient at Applebee's or the bar? Oh, yes, because Ruby Tuesdays is right down the street. So I, we were all like ordered food or whatever for dinner and I go out there and I was like, one of my patients is at the bar I'm just like, oh, this cannot be good. Because the thing is, he's on a day pass, so he has to come back. When he comes in, he goes, asks for, of course, your Percocet and your sleeping pills. And I'm like, but he had beer. Like, I saw him had a beer. So I have to say something to whoever his nurse is and be like, listen, I saw him at Albies. He was drinking. You know, we have to take extra precaution now. But the thing is, if we don't see that, if we don't know that, how are we to know? And can we be liable? Like, you know, all these things. And like, who knows? Because it's Georgia Avenue and there's lots of crazy things in D.C. on Georgia Avenue. They could pick up anything there. So that's another concern I have because they do like to party. They do know that they're in D.C. But I am happy when they do tell me because then I can be like, okay, this is the deal, you know, because if you give them, at least give them the information just so that they know, because sometimes they probably just don't. So you have to like look at it that way. My favorite perk, I do have to admit, was the huge celebrity turnout. I've hugged Stevie Nicks. I shook the hand of McFoley. I almost spilled pee on Justin Timberlake. John Voight had his own camera guy, and he took photos with each soldier, room 
by room. Tyra Banks and her long leg crew were pretty popular with the guys, too. It was really good to see uplifted spirits, even if it was just temporary. It was almost standard for the soldiers admitted to the hospital to be on some sort of antidepressant or mood stabilizer, bolster that with a sleeping aid done in cookie cutter fashion. Everyone pretty much got the same thing. Granted, some changes were made if it didn't seem to help. There were brief meetings with the psych doctor. The ones that displayed serious symptoms or who actually reached out, they were seen more. But I don't remember many follow-ups though, not for the masses. Some soldiers came to Walter Reed and they never left. Their only escape would be the eventual day pass. They would soon return for their pain and sleeping pills when their short supply ran out. A few even got a three-day pass. I naturally assumed if you can leave the hospital grounds and don't need to return for three days, well, well, you don't need to be in the hospital anymore. But then I wondered, they ever wanted to leave. Maybe there was nothing left for them without the military. They were used to the structure. They were used to the order. They were used to those walls. They were screaming for help, but all we gave them were pills. Did you feel like you were able to watch pharmaceutical addictions? Oh, yeah. I mean, it was drastic because one thing everybody was on was a dilated um, pump, PCA pump, the self-administered pump. So you can give yourself like a dose every seven minutes or what have you. And it was like a steady rate. But they would be like, okay, you know what? This is going well. We're going to take away your PCA, you know, and we're going to put in. But the thing is, they've been on it for months, you know, and they try to titrate you off and then they take it away and everything hurts and they need something and they need bad. So they put them on Percocet and then they're on Percocet for a very, very, very long time. And then we try to wean them off, you know, usually, but as soon as they leave, they're coming back through the emergency room with excruciating pain. They need Percocets. They need something, you know, and um, mostly I'm, I'm sure that it's true. I think that people do feel pain, but I also think that there's an addiction level there. But I don't know if we discerned whether we took out the confounding variables to find out if, which was really true. But pain is what they say it is. So we're going to treat it as such. The intake rate slowed down eventually a few years into the war. Still, they just kept coming, and the cycle remained the same. I felt guilty sometimes that I was stateside. It's like I got off easy because I wasn't over there. I did have this one older soldier I had taken care of. He was a platoon sergeant. He was a squad leader. He had valor. He would give me tidbits of life advice, and I would change his wounds. He listened as I told him how I felt one night. And when I was finished, he told me that I was on the front lines, that his soldiers needed me here to take care of them when they came back. And he'll never know how badly I needed his permission to believe it myself. Thank you. Today's show... Time is a River explores the lives of three service members before, during, and after they encountered the Iraq War. Brooke King likes to talk about how often she was told by her army superiors and recruiters that women would not be seeing combat in Iraq. And then I hit first day in Iraq, and it was balls to the wall. I mean, it didn't matter if you were on base or outside the wire, you were seeing combat. 
Her training stateside was as a mechanic, but once she got to Kuwait and picked up a certification on the 50 caliber machine gun, she found herself reassigned as a vehicle reclamation specialist. Which is basically a glorified tow truck operator. Except she would be responsible for recovering any bodies still inside those vehicles as well. And I remember going, oh man, I hope I don't have to do this. And then the next day, after that debriefing, (laughs) I went outside the wire and... um. Uh, It was a striker, was my first mission. When she came back home and sought treatment for PTSD at the local VA, she hit a wall. And I remember one of the the psychologists at the VA in Mission Valley Clinic saying, that can't possibly have happened to you. I'm sorry, but women aren't supposed to go into combat. And I'm like, I hate to break it to you, but I have. And the fact that you're not taking me seriously, I'm, I'm leaving. But lucky for everybody, she persisted and found her own way home through her writing. I'll let Brooke tell you the rest. Hi, my name is Brooke King. My story, Redeployment Packing Checklist, takes place in Camp Liberty, Baghdad, Iraq, April 2007. Pack your Army combat uniforms first. Military roll. Cram the black Under Armour sports bras, the tan undershirts, and the lucky convoy socks around the bottom inside edges of your green Army-issued duffel bag. Tuck the laminated photo into the bag. But don't look at it. You don't want to look at it. It's the picture you held after your first recovery mission in the sandbox, where you bagged and tagged three soldiers who had burned alive after the striker rolled over a pressure plate IED. Your brother's smirk and your father's wide grin, your look of disenchantment, the picture taken when you are an R&R, all three of you standing in front of the house, each one of you pretending that nothing had changed since you left for Iraq. It helped you fall asleep that night. You can't help yourself. You unpack the photo to look at it once more. The corner edges are falling apart. The girl in the photo used to be you, but that's not the face you see in the mirror anymore. Pack your camo-covered army Bible. The pages have to be rubber-banded shut, otherwise it opens to Psalm 23. Pack your tan, right-in-the-rain combat notebook, another sort of Bible the name and rank of every soldier you ever placed in a black body bag written on its pages. Poems. Letters to your father you never mailed. Pack the maroon prayer rug you stole while raiding a house in Sodder City. Unpack the prayer rug. Kneel on it while you pack the empty M4 magazines, the pistol holster, ammo pouches, and desert combat boots. Pick up your aviator gloves, the feel of manning a 50 cal machine gun, Pick up the shell casing from your first confirmed kill, one of six 7.62 caliber bullets that you fired into a 15-year-old boy's chest. He was shooting an AK-47 at you. You shouldn't have the shell casings. You shouldn't have the gloves. Women weren't supposed to see combat. Pack it all into the duffel. Pack the hours spent in a cement bunker waiting for mortar rounds to stop whistling into base. Pack the hate and the anger. Pack the fear. Pack the shame and disenchantment for a job done too well. Pack the back-to-back months spent going out on convoy without a day off. Pack your combat lifesaver bag, your haji killing license, and the rest of your dignity. Pack them all next to the Army Corps values and the bold promise your government made to protect innocent civilians. Pack your worn copy of Hemingway's The Sun Also Rises. Pack the tattered American flag you picked up off the ground outside of Abu Ghraib. Fold over the top flaps. Shut it up tight. Lock it. Heave it onto your back. Carry it all home. 
Tell me, when you came back, how long was it after you rotated out before you realized that something had changed and you were, was that something that happened while you were overseas? I don't think I fully understood that I had changed. Um, and it's funny, I, I and this is something I touch on um, in my memoir, is that it took me coming home to the house that I grew up in on Lancaster Drive and walking into the house and feeling like the house was smaller than I had imagined it, as if I was being confined. It was claustrophobic. Yet the house hadn't changed at all. And that's when I realized that, you know, everything in the house was the same except for me. And I remember going up into my childhood bedroom and walking upstairs and and opening the door and looking at the room and, and noticing that the room was the same but different. It had a new coat of paint. You know, it had new curtains. Um, there was a new bed set in there. Um, but I remember as a child sitting there and looking, you know, out the window. And I remember one night not being able to sleep. I woke up from a nightmare and walking up to the room and sitting on the bed and looking out the window and it not feeling the same. And I realized that I had grown up and that I was no longer a child, you know, that I was no longer a young lady. I was a woman and I was about to bring children into the world. And I needed to understand why I was feeling the way I did before I was bombarded with children who wanted to understand me more than I wanted to understand myself. And so I felt like I couldn't be a mom, the mom that I wanted to be, unless I understood what was going on and, and really delved into why I was feeling as though, you know, I wasn't myself anymore. And that's when I realized that something was seriously wrong, um, that it wasn't just that I had gone to war, it was that I had seen too much of it. And that's when I decided that, you know, like I had PTSD, but I didn't want to call it that. I, I was reluctant to say that I had PTSD because I always felt like I never saw a lot of combat. You know, I didn't see as much as an infantryman would or a cav scout would, you know. Uh, and I always felt like I didn't, I didn't earn the title, you know, to be a combat PTSD veteran. Um, and so I was always reluctant to label it that. But I, I knew that something something visceral inside me was changing, and um, and it wasn't just the pregnancy hormones. <laughs> um, and so I decided, you know, to just write about it because I knew that the VA had nothing along the lines of what I wanted to do to help myself. So I just took it upon myself to do it. It took a while. It took a long while. And then finally, um, going through uh, cognitive processing therapy, and uh, writing everything out um, in 2011, 2012, finally, um, and being able to label myself as a, uh, a combat vet with PTSD and being able to own that, that fact of myself and not being ashamed of it anymore. Um, it took a long time. You uh, you say in your in your memoir and in some of your writings that you met your husband and, and the father of your your two children while you were in Iraq, who was also in the army with you. Can you tell me a little bit about that story? How that happened? So uh, James and I met through a mutual friend when we first got to Kuwait. I had met him, 
And I, I mean, I wasn't really interested in him at that time. It's kind of like, ah, that stupid captain over there. God, he doesn't know anything. And I'm like, he's just going to get in the way. And I really wish he would just leave. Uh, but he kept coming back. And and I always, always laugh that when I first met him, he kept asking me out on dates. And I, and I kept telling him, like, we're in a combat zone. That's not going to happen. Any date that we're going to have is going to be around surrounded by a million people in a defac it's not gonna happen and he's like well just you know just go to the defac with me and i kept i think i held him off for three months before i finally agreed to go sit down and have dinner with everyone else and he happened to be there (laughs) and uh it took a long while of convincing because i realized i'm like we're in a combat zone i was like how could you ever fall in love in a combat zone and it sort of felt like a fairy tale type thing, you know, like that stolen romance in a combat zone, you know, almost like, um, oh, my God, what's that one movie? Love in the Time of War or something like right. that. It's almost like a farewell to arms, too, in that respect. That whole coming together and feeling something different than what you're feeling in a combat zone and understanding that that it's not anger or hate or guilt or shame. It's compassion and love and and trying to find that bit of humanity in someone else so that you can cling on to it and not lose it yourself. I always say that if I hadn't met James, I probably would already be dead. And if I hadn't had the children, I definitely would have already killed myself. I always tell my children every day, you know, you saved mom's life. If you weren't here, I probably wouldn't be here because it was because I got pregnant that um, I was able to leave Iraq. And by the time I got pregnant, I was at my wit's end. I had seen a couple of people in our unit shoot themselves point blank. Um, I I write about it in my novel. Uh, A guy in my unit shot himself on the steps right outside his barrack room uh, because he had just seen too much. I had almost gotten to a point where I was I was ready to take my side pistol and shoot myself in the head because I had just seen too much. I'd been there too long. If it wasn't for James, I probably would have done it. But uh, <laughs> happily, uh, we've been married for a very long time. I always call him my partner in crime, but he's more he's more or less the person that keeps me sane. And I always say he keeps the crazy down. <laughs> That kind of makes me want to ask you, I mean, you know, for for other people who don't have a partner who has intimate knowledge with something that's so specific and and so uh, hugely impactful as being in a combat zone, what is some advice you would give somebody to try to explain their experiences to a civilian? I've done workshops before where I tell this to veterans. I say, if you don't tell your story, someone else will. And no one can tell your story better than you. And so it's your obligation as a person who's been there and as it being your story to write it down, to share it, to let people know what it was really like over there. And I remember at one point telling my grandparents and my family to stop watching the news because the news was lying to them about what had happened over there. They were glossing over it and they were sugarcoating it. And I kept saying, you know, the vets who come back and write about war are the ones who will tell the truth, who will hold the media accountable for what they did and will show the world what it was really like and how it affected them. And my best advice for veterans or active military still 
is to to speak out and let people know what is really going on because across the pond, no one's going to know what's going on unless you say something. And I find that it's hard in our genre. People don't want to accept the fact that women have been in combat, that they've seen the same things as men, they've been through the same things as men, and that they're experiencing the same side effects. Thank you so much for being on Incoming, Brooke King. (laughs) Thank you. Our final contributor on today's show, Time is a River, focuses on the period after leaving the war and the military. Army veteran Zach Dreyer was well on his way to becoming a lawyer when we spoke with him, and while I hope I never need his services, if I were to, I'd be happy to have him on my side. Talking with Zach, it's easy to forget he's an Iraq War veteran because there's a quality to his speech and demeanor that could be right out of World War II, a combination of high thinking and blue-collar roots maybe, and the fact that his story focuses on the fraternity of two soldiers trying to navigate their very different lives after the war. Or maybe I just watched too many movies. Anyway, here's Zach. Hi, I'm Zach Dreyer, and I'll be reading my piece, Graduation. The second time that Ryan went to rehab after the Army, he called me every day at exactly 12.30. He was supposed to have a sobriety partner for one-on-one sessions after group, but for some reason he nominated me. And though the nurses, doctors, and eventually security personnel told him that it had to be someone that was actually in rehab with him, and I said no, partly because the doctor said so, but mostly because I wasn't sober myself, Ryan can be persistent. And so every day when the rest of the group would have the breakaway time, Ryan would call me from the doctor's office. What's up, college boy? I was eating lunch with an old professor and some of his students when the call came in. I told Dr. Cox beforehand that I was expecting an important call, so when my phone vibrated, I politely nodded goodbye, stood up, and slid my chair under the long mahogany table. Dr. Cox smiled and waved and went back to his not-a-lecture lecture on the contemporary state of Native American literature. Well, good afternoon, Dr. Jenkins, I said as I brought the phone up to my ear and pushed open the ancient hand-carved doors, emerging into the gray, dim afternoon. I've been waiting on your call. Well, what's the word, Mr. Fancy Rider Man? The door settled shut with a thud behind me. I jumped a little. Probably always will. Nothing much, really. Same as it always is. What's up with you, I asked. Oh, you know, just call and let you know how wonderful it is up here in New York. (laughs) I'm sure. There were a few scattered students sitting at the picnic tables outside. On a sunny day, the whole courtyard would be full of nervous freshmen and impatient seniors, ready to be done with it all. That day, it was almost empty. A girl in a light blue rain slicker looked up for me from her phone. Her eyes were crystal gray. Today is actually kind of nice, she said. Kind of cold, but the nurses say they're going to give double servings of warm tapioca tonight, and then we're in for an evening engagement with the Reverend Roy Williams and his racially diverse cast of sympathetic ex-smackhead finger puppets, all in the main dining hall. Well, that sounds exciting. I could hear him rifling through the doctor's desk. Ha! <laughs> You bet your ears it ain't exciting, brother. But I'll tell you what, some of these cats get all wrapped up into it like it was days of our freaking lives. There's some seriously checked out mothers in here, brother. Sounds rough, I said. Oh yeah, brother. This ain't one of those fancy army detoxes I used to go to. This here's the real deal. There's one cat in here on his 19th go-around. 14th court-ordered. He just sits there and drools all over himself while the Rev has his puffets going. 
Sounds like fine company, I said, heading down the stairs and past the picnic tables. Yeah, he's a real charmer, like Jed Clampett with a dope pitch. Eh, I guess he's not that bad. He's a vet. Nam. So he kills like a thousand gooks. I laugh looking around as if someone could have heard anyway. You know you can't call him that anymore, right? Hey, I'm just relaying the facts, brother. Well, at least you got someone to talk to this time. Oh yeah, he's a real hoot. There's another vet in here too. Durden. Doesn't drool as much. Usually only at med time. Another nom? Nah, this one's Iraq. Well, there you go. Now at least you got somebody you have something in common with. I was supposed to be reinforcing the positive, according to the doctor. I don't really know what that meant. Yeah, great, he said. And then he fell silent. I heard the blinds open up in the background. I could sense him looking out the window, past the snow-covered Adirondacks, all the way to Iraq. Just the mention of the word sends him there again. The line was silent. It always helps to have company, I said to myself, really, as he was somewhere else. I stopped by the campus turtle pond while I waited for him to come back to me. The red ear sliders were perched on their lily pads. They all dove for the cover of the murky water as I walked up. Only one of them stayed and stared me down. We were still sizing each other up when Ryan came back. Yeah, I guess, whatever, he said quietly, snapping out of his haze. Yeah, and he's more whacked out in the head than I am, too, which is always nice. Yeah, how so, I asked, not knowing what to say. I got hit with an RPG sitting in the back of a truck full of 40 Mike Mike. Nearly blew his dang legs off. I cringed and tried not to picture it. After a few years of practice, I could almost block it out on demand. But no luck. I shivered and started walking again, leaving the brave turtle by himself. Well, I meant... How is he more whacked in the head than you, but thanks for the visual. I'm sure it'll help me to get to sleep tonight. He laughed and closed the blinds. He was all the way back now. Oh, so he was spun out for like two years, man. He's from somewhere up near Boston or something. Signed on as a medic. So he's over there, and they dump him in the back of this truck all loaded down with ammo and stuff. And the RPG hits right in the middle of it. Grenades go off. Boom, boom, boom. He was painting a picture I didn't want to see. So he said bad, right? Holds the size of fists through his legs. Pants on fire all melting to him and stuff. And guess what? What? The guy starts treating his freaking self. Tourniquets both legs. Even calls his own medevac over the radio like he was some freaking Rambo on a speedball run. Jesus, man. Yeah, you bet your ears, Jesus. But anyway, so he gets the usual. Shipped off to Germany with his medals all pinned to the pillow and whatnot. Spends a while there and then it's off to Walter Reed, right? Well, so the whole time they're just pumping them full of the good stuff. Steady supply. Hydro, fentanyl, oxy's out the yang. And then one day, bam, right back to his unit for out-processing. Didn't even give him a refill script. The guy's nearly snatching old ladies' purses downtown to get dope money in less than a week. Lands himself in and out of three, four, maybe five army detoxes, and then they just give him the boot. Bad conduct. No money, no good buy metal, not even a handshake of the door. Just a boot to the backside. See you later, sucker. I struggled to find something to say. Shuffling down the sidewalk in my polo and my boat shoes, past the professor's parking lots filled with Porsches and Benz. I felt like an outsider to that world now. Well, did he fight it, I asked? Yeah, he's all good now. I guess except the smack problem, right? His parents called some senator or something, got some lawyers. They got his discharge upgraded or whatnot, and... Eh, he gets paid now. Uh, of course, he just snorts it all up his nose or shoots it down his arm. 
I looked up at the clock tower, feeling guilty about wishing I could be done with the call. As I got to my car, it started to rain in earnest. Well, I guess at least he's getting the help he needs now, right? <laughs> yeah, man. Even got himself a little blonde-headed girlfriend in here. Another patient, I asked? Ah, oh, even better. Nurse Amanda. We're getting all the extra blankets and pudding we can handle up here. I slipped into my Camry and shook the rain from my hair. I checked the clock on the dash. Five minutes left. Although I didn't want to, it seemed like a good time to bring up Mary. Speaking of women, I said casually as I could, trailing off. Nope, haven't heard a word. Ryan's part-time tweaker wife had left him two weeks before he went to rehab. She had supposedly called some lawyer off the TV and was threatening to use the dope in his system to have the court grant her custody. She skipped town the Friday after he checked in with this guy named Rodriguez from another unit, the guy she cheated on Ryan with while we were in Iraq. Eh, she's probably halfway to Mexico by now, some roached-out motel banging lines off the coffee table. My kids are probably sitting in the next room watching Elmo with some skeezy truckers or something. Eh, but life is life, brother. Let's talk about something else. I could never get him to talk about what he really needed to talk about. I feel like I failed him in that. If I could have just been a little stronger. I searched my throbbing head for a way to lighten the mood. Ha <laughs> ha! But isn't everything in life just life, young grasshopper? I said, trying to be funny. Ryan was not impressed. Comedy's not your strong suit, Tinkerbell. Stick to the poetry or whatever that crap you college boys are into these days. Anyway... Did you see Cornell's big promotion? I was happy to be done with the heavy stuff. So weak. Yeah, his wife posted pictures of the ceremony on Facebook, I said, turning the engine on and checking the clock again. Lieutenant Patrick Cornell. I can't believe he switched over the dark side, I said. Ryan laughed. I know, right? I ain't never calling little Patty Mayonnaise, sir. Me neither, I said. How'd you hear about that anyway? From Facebook, stupid. I'm in rehab, not prison. Anyway, I gotta get off of here. It's time for regrouping, where we discuss and foster the insight we glean from the growth we've made during our one-on-one -on -one sessions. He said in his best Bob Ross voice. What are you gonna tell him, I asked. That at least we're not in prison yet. We're back in the army. You know it, brother. The line went dead. He never did end up in prison or back in the army. And when he did graduate from the rigorous 14-step healing process that is New York State St. Christopher of the Adirondacks, he was voted unanimously as least likely to relapse and most likely to succeed. That gave us hope. I drove the long way off campus that day after hanging up. I stopped to watch the ROTC cadets drilling back and forth across the muddy parade field, walking in their rain gear with their little rubber guns, all so eager to graduate. Zach Dreyer, thanks for being on Incoming. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Why don't we start at the very beginning and take us to the place that led you into joining the military in the first place? Well, I mean, as much as I'd like to say I was some super patriotic guy, I'd actually, because I was a smart kid that wasn't very smart, gotten myself into a kind of a bad situation and was 
living in a homeless shelter in downtown Memphis and uh, just kind of looking for a way out, as recruiters like to do. They were trolling around the homeless shelter for people to sign up to the Army, and they told me about the GI Bill. It was all it took. I was signed up that afternoon. I uh, was ready. And this is before 9-11, right? Uh, yeah, it's, it was actually just before 9-11. Uh, I was actually moments to my duty station, really. Didn't really know anyone when 9-11 happened. So, I mean, I, I developed the patriotism, or at least the love for my brothers, which led me to stay for much longer than I had originally planned. But I certainly didn't go into it with any high patriotic purpose. As bad as that sounds. <laughs> At least I think it's honest. I think it's more people had that similar story than would cop to it. You're the first that you know of in your family to join the military. Is that right? I don't really have much of a relationship with my family, but as far as I know, it never even crossed the mind, even in high school. I mean, I had really good grades. When the recruiter came around, it was like, ha it's not going to be me. I'm not going to the Army. I'm going to college. But reality is often very different from what we picture it will be. So, Can you take us through what your service and tours consisted of a little bit? I signed up as a 13 Bravo cannon crew member, blow things up. Looked really cool in the recruitment video. It was like, that's me right there. Let's blow things up. Went to Iraq in 04 to 05, Afghanistan 06 to 07, and then Afghanistan again 08 to 09. So it's kind of running downhill the whole time. And then 2009, I was injured. Took a couple of years to cycle out of the system or whatnot. Then I was gone. <laughs> and as an artillery crew member, you you really were primarily put into an infantry role. Is that correct? In Iraq, there wasn't a whole lot of call for shooting huge bombs around the city stationed in Baghdad. So you can't just indiscriminately blow things up in a heavily populated area. So we all kind of got shifted into like a pseudo-infantry role. I will never say that I was infantry, but the people who are in know what I'm talking about. Right. Do you mind telling us a story about your injury that led to you uh, rotating out? I was actually uh, in Afghanistan '09 For some strange stroke of luck, the platoon sergeant and platoon leader were both stuck on leave at the same time. So I was a a buck E6, brand new E6, stuck running a platoon. We were in a village kind of hassling people for information about where's the bad guy. Oh, we don't know nothing, sir. And uh, an Afghan National Police Force truck pulled up and told us that there were some guys setting up an ambush for us as we were supposed to leave the little village there. They were trying to, you know, usher us the other way out of town. By that time, it was my third combat tour. It was hot. I was tired of it all. I was just ready to bang it out. So we told the guy to take us there, you know, take us straight to where they are. And uh, as we pulled up, my driver parked on top of a culvert. And I looked at him and yelled at him for being an idiot. I said, hey, what are you, what are you doing? This is like uh, culverts are where they put the bombs, stupid. Pull up 20 feet. And so I had him pull up 20 feet, and that parked us directly on top of an IED, <laughs> uh, which subsequently, of course, blew up on me. I was unbuckled because we were about to dismount, and it kind of – took and jammed me up into the ceiling, messed my back up pretty good. One of those things, when it rains, it hurts. When it's cold, it hurts. When I walk too much, when I sit too much, when I sleep. After that, I went to the, you know, the main fob, a bunch of pain medicines, a bunch of tests. And strangely enough, the doctor actually prescribed me massages every day by the nurses, which was 
pretty cool. But after about a month of that or whatnot, you know, I was really interested in getting back. So cycled back out to my guys, either the first or one of the first missions when I was back. My platoon sergeant had come back and he was leading the patrol in truck one. And uh, he drove across yet another culvert, called back on the radio, IED, IED, IED. He said, there's wires hanging out of the culvert. And for some unknown reason, I decided to just open up the door of my truck and hop out and run over there and snatch it up, take a look, see what it was. When I got back to the truck, everybody was just kind of staring at me with their mouths open like, what what the hell was that, you know? And I guess that was just the moment. First Sergeant and the commander were like, you know what, uh, maybe you shouldn't be in charge of things anymore. <laughs> I guess they thought I had gone too far. I mean, the truth of the matter is, I, I don't know why I did it. It's just, it, did, it didn't seem real anymore. I guess once, you, once you've been there for long enough, it's like, it's just life, you know? If you die, you die. <laughs> they actually sent me back to the main fob for some relaxation time over the last, I think it was about a month of our deployment that was left. And then we all redeployed back and I started going through the process of going to see the people to get my paperwork together to get out and stuff. And it takes much longer than anyone could possibly imagine. And so by the time it was time for them to redeploy, I was just getting into the final stages of my process. So I actually watched my guys go off back to war, which was pretty hard. And then I uh, sat around for a month or two worrying about them and feeling like a complete loser. And then the day came. I signed my paperwork, went and turned it in at battalion headquarters and just kind of surreally walked out the door. There's no pomp, no circumstance, no nothing, just hasta luego. What was it like for you when you came home physically? And started the transition into civilian life stateside? Uh, it was pretty rough. Like a lot of guys, I had a whole lot of problem in cars. I used to chunk grenades at us from overpasses. I mean, still to this day, uh, every time I go underneath an overpass, I have to kind of hunch down and look up, even though I know with relatively assurity that there's nobody chunking grenades off the, you know, 45th Street Bridge. <laughs> not, but, not yet. You, know, <laughs> you never know. You know, it was, just, it was difficult. I didn't really leave my house much. I didn't really feel connected with anyone around me. I was, I picked up and moved. A lot of people stay around a military town, uh, but I was off to college. So I picked up and moved to a strange town where I didn't know anybody. Felt pretty isolated, pretty scared of life, really. Eventually I got over it, I guess. <laughs> I, I guess I'm getting over it. Can you tell me the story about what led you into law? I don't know whether or not he would appreciate me telling this story, but I had a soldier who, even before we deployed, I mean, it was pretty clear to people that he was not an extremely mentally stable human being. But the Army being what it is, you need numbers to deploy, and that's really all you are is a number. So because we needed a certain percentage of unit strength, uh, he was drug along with us to combat, which he also didn't handle very well. And then we came back, he started presenting the normal signs of crazier than a house rat or whatnot. Uh, and so he was put on bunch of medications, bunch of different doctors. Apparently some of them conflicted with each other, but also he wasn't supposed to be drinking, which he was. But one night while drinking and on his medication in the barracks, he uh, was playing a little Call of Duty and I guess thought he was inside of the game. So he crawled down the hallway to the CQ, which is charge of quarters, the guy who kind of sits around and watches to make sure nothing's going too wrong. Uh, and he crept up behind the guy and slit his throat from ear to ear. The guy lived, but they tried to charge him with attempted murder. And I just, 
they were trying to steamroll over the fact that there were all these mitigating circumstances and issues in the background and just kind of charge him as if he was somebody who pretty much did it intentionally, even though in law school, it's, you, I've learned that it was intentional, it just perhaps not culpable. But anyway, so they were just kind of running him over and I didn't feel good about that. And I guess I'd seen a few good men. So <laughs> it was like, <laughs> hey, I'm going to go be Caffey and save the world. Uh, but I have since decided not to join the JAG Corps, and even though that's what led me here. It's, uh, the path has changed along the way. Our listeners who also listen to Serial, the podcast in season two that features Bo Bergdahl, know that that show, by the end of its run, makes a fairly compelling case that Bergdahl's culpability is also in question due to a lot of mental instability and other factors the military was aware of. How much do you feel the Army and the military in general set themselves up for situations like this with the kind of surge policies that come from snatching up guys that otherwise maybe would never have made the cut? Well, I mean, that's a that's a reoccurring problem with not just the American Army, but every Army. You get done with a hard war, people leave, the budgets get cut, troop levels go down, people lie to themselves and pretend like there's not another war coming, even though there's always another war coming. And so what you end up with is it pops up on you that all of a sudden you need a couple extra, you know, 100,000 people. Where are you going to get them? Well, where you get them is from the people that you had originally told, no, you can't come in the army. So what we do is we drop the standards of entry into the army and we end up letting a lot of guys in that otherwise wouldn't. I'm not going to say the problems of the Army stem from that, but a lot of the problems in the Army probably stem from that. And then just not having enough trained people. You get to the point where it's like, oh, welcome to the Army. Here's your boots. Here's your uniform. Go to combat. So you got a lot of people over there that don't know what's going on, a bunch of scared kids. It's bound to lead to some problems. What do you feel like was the most important thing missing from the civilian perception of the military or soldiers in particular? Well, and just let me preface this by saying I'm not just talking about American soldiers. Like I take a lot of flack for saying these sorts of things, but I am not just talking about American soldiers. I'm talking about soldiers from the Spartan War to today. Soldiers are human beings. They are certainly not all G.I. Joes. We are flawed in a million different ways. A lot of these soldiers come home and they've either seen, heard, or done something that doesn't quite jive with the, the civilian perspective of the honorable soldier. And so because if they were to say anything about the things they've seen, heard, or done, they would be individually judged as horrible human beings and lose all of their honor in the eyes of all these civilians and family member and friends. They have to keep that stuff inside. I like to write about the darker side of the army, the things that people don't like to talk about because because we don't talk about them and because civilians don't want to hear it, soldiers don't talk about it and they end up you know, suck starting an M4, as we say in the Army. When we were talking earlier, you brought up the fact that a lot of Vietnam-era literature came out 10, 20, 30 years after the fact, after the authors and veterans who wrote those books had time to ruminate and get some perspective. What do you feel, because there's such a tidal wave right now of Afghan-Iraq veteran literature out there, what do you feel like is missing from this body of work that might get supplemented in the next decade or more? I feel like a lot of times when you first start coming back, when people first start to write about it, they're still dealing with that, what can I say? What can I, what can I get away with? What can I say that won't get people in trouble? What can I say that won't have people hating me? So I think the further along the line you go, the more honest 
the writing will be coming. Matterhorn took 30 years. Tim O'Brien took a while to get his thoughts onto paper. I just think the further it goes, the more truthful and true to life the writing will become. Do you feel like the lack of those narratives, the lack of those stories about soldiers getting high in the barracks and soldiers, yeah. you know, the, the moments when soldiers can be dicks, you know, are, yeah. the, when those stories are missing, do you feel like that that has a negative consequence and that it leads to us putting veterans in these three camps of the hero, the victim, or the villain? It's like the only portrayals they end up as, especially yeah, in Hollywood. That's, that's, our, that's our three categories of veteran. Uh, yeah, I mean, what I think it does is it leads civilians to perpetuate this false narrative of the hero. And I'm not saying that soldiers aren't heroes. There's a lot of soldiers who do amazing things. But there are also soldiers that are, you know, just not either A, that great of a human being, or B, didn't handle situations very well. I myself look back on my service and there are a million things that taken completely out of context is just like a single snapshot. Even looking back on it myself is like, oh my God, what kind of monster could you have possibly been? But you look at it in its totality and it's like, oh, well, in perspective, I can understand how someone would do things like this or get to these sorts of points. But the more and more we ignore these things that we see here and do, the more we ignore the reality of life as not just a U.S. soldier. Again, I don't, I don't want people get mad at me because they think I'm attacking American soldiers. I'm talking about soldiers in general. But the more we ignore the realities of war, the harder it is for soldiers to come to grips with the reality of war, the harder it is for them to come forward and express these things that are eating them alive. I mean, I think a lot of this hero worship that we do as not just Americans, but people all around the world that do of their soldiers for their country and their flag, I think a lot of that leads to, what is it, 22 veterans a day now committing suicide. And I think a lot of that's because they don't really have anybody they can talk to about it. You bring up a really good point because it's impossible to talk about the nature of being a soldier without commenting on the nature of war. And if the only narratives we accept are those where soldiers are heroes, then war looks pretty good. It's pretty compelling. I mean, what teenager doesn't want to be a hero, right? But if you look yeah, at war, it's like you can't go through war without becoming a little bit of a monster. That's not such a good sales pitch. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's probably not going to go over well at the recruiting. Uh, <laughs> right. It's really hard to put that on a poster, right? <laughs> and I mean, I think I, I take the most flack really from fellow veterans. A lot of veterans don't want people to have a dislike for for soldiers. And so they think when people are honest about the realities of war, that it's going to tarnish the the idea of the soldier in civilians' heads. But, I mean, you have to weigh that against the other option. The other option is allowing soldiers to, to you know, kind of suffer in silence. And I'd rather every civilian on the planet hate me and think I was the worst soldier since sliced bread than to force another soldier into suffering in silence. I mean, uh, I'll throw myself out there. I don't care. <laughs> none, none of them are writing my checks, so... Well, last question. If you were to come across a service member who had a few weeks or a month left before they rotated out of the military and you could give them a piece of advice, what do you think it would be? 100% it would be to take advantage of the opportunities that are afforded to you. No matter what you want to do in life, if you are a veteran, there is someone who has set up some sort of program to assist you in getting there. And when you get out of the Army, like, I've been there. It feels you're just totally awash in the world. You have, I mean, you don't know up from down anymore. You go from someone telling you what time to shower and shave to 
not having any direction whatsoever in life. And so a lot of soldiers, tons of soldiers, they get out and they just kind of get stuck. They end up going and hanging out at the VFW or Heroes Night Out or whatever. And for them, it, it, life just stops. They, they spend the rest of their lives being veterans. That's what they do. That's who they are. But there's so many opportunities to become a lawyer who was a veteran or a doctor who was a veteran or a painter or a writer who was a veteran. Your military service does not have to be the identifying characteristic of your life. It can be a footnote in your very lengthy and impressive biography if you're willing to go out there and just, just like you did in the Army, give it your all and actually allow people to help you. I mean, we didn't know how to do the job of being a soldier until our chiefs taught us how to do the job of being a soldier. And you can't do anything else without somebody giving you a helping hand to, to figure out the process that you need to go through to become what it is that you want to be. And there will always be somebody there with their hand reaching out to help you up. If you don't take advantage of those things, then you will end up just being a veteran for the rest of your life. And it's a pretty sad state of affairs. I mean, like in my story, that's, that's how people end up in rehab for the rest of their life is that they never get anything besides what they don't have anymore to hold on to. So if anything, I would tell them to go out there and conquer the world. You're more disciplined and trained than anyone else around you. So use what you learned. I know it's hard to translate it onto a resume, but it's not hard to translate it into real life. The discipline of being a soldier will translate into the discipline required to go to med school, the discipline required to go to law school, the discipline required to get an advancement in whatever field you choose. All right. Well, Zach Dreyer, next time I'm in Gainesville and if I find myself a foul of the law, I look forward to getting your representation. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm always available for a fee. <laughs> Good talking with you, brother. I'll talk to you soon. All right. That's our show. Incoming is produced by myself, Justin Hudnall. Jennifer Corley is our editor. Original music by Chris Warren, Ariana Warren, Chris Apple, Andre Orl, and our outro music by 1032, a.k.a. Tim Koch. Special thanks to WUFT in Gainesville for helping us to record Zach Dreyer and WUSF in Tampa Bay for helping us out with Brooke King. Funding for Incoming is provided by the KPBS Explorer Program, the Veterans Initiative in the Arts from the California Arts Council, and listeners like you. Thanks for listening. We'll talk again soon. KPBS On Demand is supported by Pacific Arts Movement's 2021 San Diego Asian Film Festival, October 28th through November 6th, showcasing over 130 films and honoring Asian and Asian American filmmakers. For tickets and information, go to sdaff.org.